some of you come from places where you, if people said they lived in the woods, they would not be referring to something like the Presidio, right? Like, no, nah, that's, nah, that's where the creepy, creepies live. That's not where you want to live in the place that we come from. But in the Presidio, why not? I want you just to know from me this morning, I'm thrilled that you're here. I love what God's doing in this community. I met a number of you who are here, who are here for the first time. And, and a cool story, just met someone who just happens to be from Zambia, as she told me, who just happens to be living in San Francisco, Bay Area, who just so happens to be a nurse, who just so happened to be a nurse that helped whenever one of our leaders here at Epic was delivering a child who just so happened to invite her to church when she had a ton of other things, I'm guessing, on her mind. And you're here and now you're serving. Which, Chi-Chi, I'm just thrilled that you're here. And what we love is that over the last four years since our church has existed, God's been doing this kind of thing, bringing people from around the world. And who would think that in a labor and delivery opportunity, I'll call it that, I don't know, you ladies call it other things that we can't say at church, but in, a, in, a, in that situation that, that one of our women who was giving birth to her child and being cared for by you, that she would say, hey, why don't you come check out my church? And now you're here and uh, already serving, which, which is awesome. And there are stories like that. Met some of you here. There were some parents today of some individuals who are going to be baptized at the end of our service. Um, someone who just happens to park at Jesse Garage saw the church sign. She's here this morning for the first time. So I just love what God does. And we never know. We never, 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 never know that when we start something like this, um, what could happen over the years. And so I'm thrilled, uh, just thrilled at what God's doing. And, and, uh, and I realize we've got a long way to go. Um, we started last week, if you weren't here, we started this Who's My Neighbor series last week. It's just a short, for us, a short three-week series on this idea of neighboring. It really stems from a book we've read over the last couple of years, a few of us on the team, um, called The Art of Neighboring. Uh, we ran out of these books last week. We're giving them out to our church. We'll have about 100 more next Sunday, so um, hopefully you can be here. We'll have them either in the Connection Center or the lobby. But it's really helped us shape this idea behind the series, Who's My Neighbor? We'll conclude the series next week, and here's how we're going to conclude it. We're going to conclude it following the 11 o'clock service next week by training all of you how to throw great parties. Now, anybody ever been to a church where they taught you how to throw parties? Anybody ever been to a church where they didn't know the meaning of party, right? Like, you sat still. You didn't laugh right there. Uh-uh. You, you wore your things. There was no party involved. I mean, everybody in the church was partying, but they did, didn't talk about it at church, right? You ever been there? We're going to teach you, and not me, Mary Kill, who does a fabulous job with this, is going to do a training following the 11 o'clock service next week on how to throw parties in your neighborhood with intentionality and strategy, and it's going to be awesome. 42 people have already signed up just as of uh, earlier this week, and uh, you can still get on board, but we need to know that you're coming, so just write party training on your communication card. We're going to provide a free lunch for you. If you need childcare, note that too, just so we can make sure that our family ministries are equipped for you to be able to bring your kids and we know that they're coming and they'll be um, taken care of and, and all that kind of thing. So that's next week. You just heard Lindsay mention Easter's two weeks away. Huge opportunity for us as a church community. And I'm thrilled that you're here. Um, one of the things that's funny to me, and maybe it is to you too, is when it comes to certain words, um, it's amazing to me how we come up with definitions that suit us well and benefit us. Does that make sense? And, and here's how we do it. If it's a positive word, we, we make sure that it's a definition that includes us, right? So if I were to ask you, are you awesome? Everyone would say, Yes, because you have a way you define awesome that no one else defines it like that. But if it were a negative word, if it, if it was a negative word, what would happen is you would make sure you defined it in such a way that it would exclude you because it's a negative term. Let me give you a few thoughts on that. Here, here's some examples. If I were to say to you this morning, are you a rude person? Absolutely not. Are you crazy? If I were to say to you this morning, are you generous? 
Of course. If I were to ask you this morning, are you selfish? You would think of the one unselfish thing you've done in 2015. Like, no, because I helped open the door for the lady carrying the groceries. I am not selfish. And if I were to ask you, and this is the question of the day, are you a good neighbor? Absolutely. Right? I don't play loud music. I don't put the compost in the wrong bin. I I keep the blue bag with me when I'm walking the dog. Right? I am an awesome neighbor. But what I want to do today is show you how Jesus might want to redefine that word for us. We all have working definitions we use. And here's what the vision of our church is, especially for those of you who haven't heard this, you're here for the first time. The vision of Epic Church is to see an increasing number of people here in San Francisco orient their entire lives around Jesus. Meaning this, that because of who Jesus is, because of what um, he has said, we're willing to order our lives according to what he has told us. Otherwise, we're trying to make up our own decisions about what everything should mean and asking him to sort of tag along with us. And I'm going to give you a way you and I can know if we're progressing in this idea of orienting more of our lives around Jesus. Here's a way you can know it. If certain words in your lives, if you're allowing your wor- those certain words in your life to be redefined by him, okay? And I don't mean on paper, but if you and I are allowing certain words in our lives to be redefined by him, here's what I mean. Uh, until we come into contact with what Jesus says about something, we all have a way that we think about that. As an example, we have a way we think about how we should use our money. And then Jesus comes onto the scene and he tends to redefine that. We have a way that we live out sexuality in our lives. And there's a way we're like, oh, we think we've got this idea. Here's the best plan. And Jesus shows up on the scene. And if we take him seriously, what he tends to do is redefine how we should live sexuality out in our lives. When it comes to how you do your job and what's the point and what's the purpose of you going to work every day, you and I have a way that we think about it. It's to kill it. It's to make the money. It's to be seen as awesome. And whatever the case may be, Jesus steps in and he redefines how we think about those words. And here's what he wants to do today. He wants to redefine some things for you. He wants to redefine some things for me. He wants to redefine some things for our church. And the big idea today is that he wants to redefine what we think of when we think of the word neighbor. What we think of when we think of the word neighbor. Our teaching today is from a very classic parable. It's not one just that people in the church know. It actually, it, it, from this parable, there's a term that gets coined, and it's used by newscasters. It's used around the world in spiritual, like church settings and outside of the church. Um, it's a parable of the Good Samaritan. And that term, you'll hear it all the time. If someone does a good deed in a community, they'll say, that person did a great act. They are a good Samaritan. But what I want you to see this morning is that it isn't a story primarily about how we can be good and do just random things. It's primarily a story about Jesus redefining how we think of neighbor. So if you have a Bible, we're in Luke chapter 10. If you need one, just lift a hand. We'll distribute one to you. Our volunteers will get one into your hands. Luke chapter 10, we'll start in verse 25. Read down through verse 37. The parable of the good Samaritan. Whatever we think we are familiar or we are not familiar with in this text, I hope what we're willing to do is walk into this experience, this encounter Jesus has with this Pharisee, this expert in the law. Walk into this and and be willing, at least willing, to consider redefining how we think of the term neighbor. Would you stand with me as we look at this together? Here we go. Luke says it like this. And behold, a lawyer stood up. It's a Pharisee. Stood up to put him, that's Jesus, to the test. Saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? 
And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, I know we have never done that, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Are we willing to allow ourselves and our definition of neighbor to be redefined this morning? I hope so, because I think that's the aim for Jesus. Here we go. Have a seat. Let's get into this teaching. So this expert in the law, he comes to Jesus because he wants to test Jesus. And it's what the Pharisees are doing all throughout the Gospels. They're coming to Jesus, trying to put him in a situation that he gets, um, doesn't give the right answer. And ultimately, they're going to crucify him because he doesn't pass their test. He's, he's bringing a movement that they're not okay with. He's interpreting their law in a way that doesn't benefit them and their self-righteous ways. And this is what they're doing. But I find it ironic that this guy comes to Jesus to test him. And before the conversation's over, this guy's the one taking the test. Right? Jesus doesn't really get tested with much here that he can't handle. This guy is so surprised that the test, the tables get turned on him. And all of a sudden you leave the exchange with him being the one taking the test and seeing himself in the parable. And we love to see stories about other people and think that we're not anyone depicted in the story, aren't we? And you're like, no, man, I'm talking to you, you know? And so he's going to see himself in the story, but he starts off just with a question. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The first thing I want to point out, just so we don't run through this and go, oh, I've got to love my neighbor so I get into heaven, okay? There's a correlation for sure, but there's a cause and effect that if we aren't careful and we just take it at face value outside of the rest of Scripture, we will get the cause and effect relationship wrong. He says, ironically, with fault, what must I do to inherit? What must I do to inherit? Many of us think about when it comes to being okay with God or God being appeased by our lives, that we've got to have this bar of religion. And as long as we cross over it, whether it be a good moral life or having the right answers, that when we cross over that, all of a sudden we have this relationship with God, all is well, and we move on to whatever way we want to live our lives. But when it comes to his question, what must I do to inherit? Here's how you inherit something. You don't do anything right? Here's how you inherit anything. You have the right relationship and whoever it is that's leaving you an inheritance, they have um, done so because of an act of grace and generosity. Does that make sense? So there's nothing that you're going to do to inherit what God wants to put into your life. You're not going to be reconciled um, to God because of what you do. You're going to be reconciled to God because he has adopted you as a son or daughter of his. And he has, um, in a very generous act of grace and amazing generosity, he has bestowed an inheritance on you. Okay? And so it's not, if you're in this morning and this is all new to you, you're thinking, oh, I just want to be a good person so that I get in. There are no good people, first of all, and we don't get in that way, thankfully. 
we receive an inheritance when he becomes a father to us. The scriptures say that we are dead in our sins and trespasses. We are dead in our sins and trespasses, but God, according to his amazing grace, through faith, has made us his children. That's the whole idea behind that. So he gets on to that, and Jesus doesn't, he doesn't have a problem with the question. He answers the question to him by saying, what is written in the law, and how do you read it? This guy was an expert in the law, so it's not surprising that he gives an answer on the spot without thinking. He doesn't have to, I don't know how many of you had to, you know, some of you, you know, cheated by writing answers down on your arms in college. I won't talk about that. Um, but he doesn't have to cheat. He knows it by heart. He's an expert in the law. And he's like, no, I know the big two. The big two are to love God with everything you have and all that you are, and then love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says to him, he doesn't, he doesn't have a problem with his answer. He's like, you've got it right. You're right. You're correct. Anyone ever been in a conversation like that and, uh, and asked a question after you got the answer that you realized I never should have asked the question? You ever been changed like that? You're like, oh, I shouldn't have asked about that policy at the office, right? I should have stopped when they told me, just interpret it however you want to. You're like, no, 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 I need to know. Can't it? Like some of you are like, you guys amaze me. You're like, yeah, we don't even have a vacation policy at work. But you don't love that. You don't even know what that means. Like, can I really be gone? Like, can I just be gone when the days the person that works beside me is gone? If I don't take vacation, do I put myself head and shoulders above the other people in the organization? Right? He's like, oh, yeah, we don't don't have a vacation policy. That's crazy, I think. All right? I think that's crazy because then you're like, can I take it? Can I not take it? Um, but, but, But what happens is this guy doesn't stop with this questioning of Jesus. Look at verse 29. This is where it turns. And I know none of us try to justify ourselves, do we? Uh-uh, ever. You, you never try to go, oh, but, but I was late because, or no, the reason I did that crazy thing was, this guy tries to justify himself. In fact, trying to justify himself, he's going to ask Jesus a question. And the reason this guy wants to justify himself is the same reason we want to justify ourselves. We want to make sure that how Jesus defines something is a definition that we're comfortable with. Let me say that again. And some of you need to think about more in your life than just neighboring with this idea. We want Jesus' definition to match our definition without us having to redefine our definitions. We want to go, hey, okay, Jesus agrees with me 100%. And then we want to feel good about it. That's where this guy's at. He's like, okay, the big idea is to love God with everything. Second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. But he asked this question. It's the question of our series. The question is, so, so who's my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And then Jesus completely redefines this guy's idea of neighbor, which leads to a question for us. Are we willing to let Jesus completely redefine neighbor in our lives? Are we willing to let Jesus completely redefine neighbor in our lives? And here's the thing. Jesus is, it's not like Jesus is going to say to us this morning, hey, you guys live in that complex city of San Francisco. Um, just, Just don't worry about this one. Right? Because of where we live, it brings an incredible reality to what Jesus is saying throughout this text. And so Jesus begins to tell this story, a story that you're familiar with. A lot of things are interesting to me about this story. The first thing is that there are three guys represented in the parable. The first is a priest. And just so we're clear, in the first century, in Jewish culture, um, the priest was the person who was seen as the most godly person on the planet. Does that make sense? So what we see is that, oh, Jesus, he's God. He's the son of God. He's the big idea of everything going on because we're looking back 20 centuries. 
But if Jesus himself was written into this story, who do you think would be seen as most godly, the priest or Jesus? The priest. He represented the people to God and he represented God to the people. Now, something that's very key in this text, it says that that, 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 the, 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 the route was from Jerusalem down to Jericho, which means the priest was leaving what? The temple. Okay, he's likely in the story, right? It's a story, it's not fact, but he, and the, the idea is that he's leaving Jerusalem, headed down to Jericho, which mean he, means he has just performed his religious duties. The priest, more than anyone else, would know what the great two commandments were. So the priest, he comes by and he sees the guy with all of the needs on one side and he just bypasses him and keeps going. The next person that comes down the road is a Levite. A Levite's not exactly what a priest is, but pretty similar. And and just right under a priest, a Levite is someone who would handle temple duties as well, typically assigned by the priest or others there in leadership. The the Levites would handle certain um, responsibilities within the temple. And so these two guys are seen as the most, this just scares us to death, by the way. These two guys are seen as the most holy people in all of Jerusalem. These two guys are seen as the people that they know God in a way that no common man or woman knows God. God. And yet in the story, they are the ones who don't live out the things that they know. And here's what should scare us to death. Knowledge of God guarantees absolutely nothing. Now, some of us are going, well, yeah, I don't have any of it. So that's great, Ben. <laughs> that's not the point. <laughs> like, I'll just stay ignorant. No, but knowledge doesn't guarantee anything. And most of us, if we can just be honest, no matter if we're sort of and baby steps in our faith, or we've been walking with God for a long time, uh, mostly every one of us in this room know more than we're doing in our lives. I claim a knowledge problem, but the reality is it's a heart problem for me, and it's a heart problem for you, and it's a heart problem for the priest and the Levite. They, 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 their knowledge didn't guarantee anything. And then the Samaritan comes by. And the Samaritan, he has something going for him that most of us don't. He is flexible and he's compassionate. He's flexible and he's compassionate. If you didn't hear the, uh, the message last week, uh, I would encourage you to go back and watch it. Just because the thing we were saying is that if God has said these two things are most important, loving him and loving our neighbor, then it can't be possible that he would give us a purpose in life that kept us from doing those two things. And the Samaritan, he's flexible and he's compassionate. Me, I'm in a hurry and I'm self-absorbed. Don't throw the tomatoes because you're in this camp with me, many of you, all right? He's flexible. As we said about Jesus last week, Jesus was interruptible. The Samaritan is interruptible. It's not, he's not taking care of this person because he's unemployed. Then how do you know that? Because he's paying for someone's needs. Unemployed people don't pay for someone's needs. It's not because he didn't have anything better to do. He doesn't owe this guy a favor. He's not looking for like a a fun kind of, you know, hangout time. He's flexible. I'm in a hurry. One thing I said this week is just, why do we try to do everything and causes us, it causes us to hurry rather than doing a few things and trying to take our time and do them well. Friends, we continue in this culture and yes, in this church to wear busyness and to wear hurry like it's some badge of honor. And what do we win with it? Remind me, I'm just trying to remind myself, wait. Ben, I get that to-do list crossed off. That's right, I forgot. The problem for many of us is that we would have never even seen this person because we would have tripped over them on the sidewalk while checking our email. Right? We wouldn't even seen them. 
And the Samaritan is flexible and, and he's compassionate. And the question for me is, what's our first response when we see someone in need? What's our first response when we see someone in need? And one of the things that we try to do here, because of where our church is located, we try to speak into the context that we're in. I told Shauna last night that if I were teaching this in other congregation and communities that I've been in before, I would still, this would still be completely true, but I've been in places, and many of you have lived in towns and in cities and parts around uh, this country and other countries where you had to go out of your way to find someone in need. You ever, ever lived there? Anybody? Because they're over the railroad tracks, right? And you can just raise your hand on this. How many, how many people for your, for your place, you had to go to the north side of town to find people in real need? Anybody? North siders? South side, anybody? Like it, those people lived on the south side. West side? No, I'm not going to do the slogan, all right? I'm like getting shot up here. <laughs> east side? Anybody east side of town? That was, that was where you had to go? We don't have that luxury. I've got to speak into our context today. Here's our context. We're not just even in the city like San Francisco. We are in this part of San Francisco. I do not walk into Epic Church or walk out of Epic Church without running into obvious need every single day. Every day. I'm surrounded. We're within blocks. And I know these people personally. We're within blocks of the richest people I know in the entire world and the poorest people I know. Know them by name. They're in our church. They're in our community. It's everywhere. And what you're not going to get from me today is all of the easy, quick answers because I don't have any. I don't know how to wrestle through this. I know that if we give $10 to every person we see in need, all of a sudden we're out a million. I get it. I don't have easy answers, but I think we have to raise the issue. How do we live this way? How do we struggle through this idea? Because what Jesus is doing is redefining how we think of the word neighbor. He's redefining how we think of the word neighbor. What is our first response? Man, sometimes we don't even see it, right? Right? Other times we wish we didn't see it. We wish that someone would do something about it or them. We think they're solely responsible for where they've ended up. And typically the last thing we're thinking is, how can I help? Maybe that's just me. I love what the Samaritan does with this man. He meets his needs in really practical ways. If you look at the text, just real practical ways. Sometimes we would rather theorize about how to help people rather than just think of practically how to help people, right? Some of you are much more philosophical, uh, philosophical than I am. Like, well, if we, like, let's just do something. Here's what he does. He saw him. He bound up his wounds. He set him on his own animal. He brought him to an inn. He told the innkeeper, or he took care of him. And the next day, he, he gave more money to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. One thing that's not obvious, but I think is really interesting because of the exchange, is that this guy, he didn't just do some things and, and, and give him some money and just help him a little bit. He actually stayed the night. Now, I'm not encouraging you to, to do a spend the night party in the Tenderloin. That's not what I'm about. If that's your thing, awesome. For most of us in this city and most of us in this congregation, we would much rather throw money at it than engage it. I would. For most of us, $5, $10, even $100, that's more manageable than giving up 30 minutes to have a conversation. 
Am I alone in that? But the deal is, this guy engages him. He takes care of him. He meets his needs in practical ways. He binds up his wounds. He, he, he tells the guy, which is amazing to me, he's like, hey, and if he needs any more help along the way, just know that I'll come back and I'll pay you. Even when I get to the point of helping people, it's usually a drive-by help. Does that make sense? Here you go. Please don't talk to me. I don't say that. I just think it. But God's called us to engage. He's called us to do something. We live here, right or wrong, good or bad, whatever we wish was different. This is where we live. This is the place for most of us that we call home. And by the way, you guys know we have a 10-year lease on this space, so I think it's not going to go away. Right? This is home. This is home. And so Jesus begins to have the conversation. Jesus says to this man, which of these proved to be a neighbor? The guy's head must start spinning at this time. Because now he's starting to think about himself and where he fits into the parable. And hear this. Now he realizes that the religious priest is not a good neighbor. And now he knows that the religious leading Levite is what? Not a good neighbor. And now he knows that he himself? Not a neighbor. Jesus said, which one was it? He couldn't even say the word Samaritan, so he said this. It was the one who showed mercy. And here's a Big question for us today. If neighbor is defined by the one who showed mercy, how many people are calling you and me their neighbors? You're like, but Ben, I'm surrounded by people. Yeah, but let's, let's shift the definition. Let, let's change the definition of things. If this is the definition of neighbor, the one who showed me mercy, then how many people have been as a neighbor? Large scale, collectively, how many people have Epic Church as a neighbor? This is why we're trying to do the things we're trying to do with Bessie Carmichael School and Because Justice Matters and because and City Impact. That's what, this is what we're trying to get into because we believe Jesus has given us a mandate to not just be comfortable with people who are like us, who like us, and who are like us in all kinds of ways, social class, interests, whatever the case may be, faith. How many people would call you a neighbor today? How many people would call me a neighbor if this is the new definition of neighbor? I've seen many of you, some of you are killing it in this area of your life. And you're teaching us well what it means to be merciful, what it means to see people as they are and to meet needs where they are and to be interruptible and not to be in such a hurry and to be gracious. Some of you are teaching us a lot about this, but most of us need to, need to engage in this a little more. The one who showed him mercy. The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Let me give you a few practical thoughts. Here's what we can do to show mercy in our neighborhoods. The first thing we need to do is just see people. Like, Ben, that seems boring. That seems easy. Just see people. In in an eye-to-eye kind of way. Like, just see people. Because for me, I can dismiss things I don't see much easier than things I see for a while. Just see people as they are. Meet their needs. A few months ago, there was a flooding in our neighborhood a few streets over. And Shauna, she leads the way for us so much in this. She's like, you know, I bet they're probably not using their kitchens much. Let's, let's pack up five lunches and take them and distribute them. And we did that. Sometimes we're like, oh, I've got to come up with something amazingly brilliant. No, just meet their needs. And remember this. This is a big one for us. Um, we don't meet needs by giving people what we think is best for them. We meet needs by giving people what is best for them. 
Not what we think would be brilliant, but what, what we think would actually help. Not that they would be, oh, wow, you gave me so No, just give me what I need. And another thing practically is that this is going to require sacrifice of time and money and reputation. The Samaritan had to give up, he gave up a lot of time. We know he gave up his, his, gave up his money. And he, he had to risk his reputation in this moment, too. We'll have to do the same. And the reason this is such a big idea is because we must remember the first question that started this conversation. How did they get into conversational neighboring? What was that first question? The guy wanted to know, how do I get eternal life? It wasn't, hey, can you tell me how to be better in this social justice arena of life? No, he asked the big, weighty question that led to a conversation about being a good neighbor. Does that seem a little important? Here's some practical things that we just talked about, but let me give you sort of the deeper heart change that I think will be the best motivation for us. I think we can become good neighbors when we realize how Jesus has neighbored us. Remember the definitions we just talked about? One of them was he was the one who showed mercy. Has Jesus been a good neighbor to us? Has he been the best neighbor? Some of you are like, no, Ben, that would really be awesome. Jesus has neighbored us a great sacrifice to himself. The Samaritan sacrificed a lot, would you say? Not compared to Jesus. But then my favorite thing, just about the, the, the general idea of the story, is that, is that the Samaritan was willing to cross from his side of the street to where the needs were. Jesus has done much more than cross sides of the street. He's left heaven, left his throne, came to earth, laid down his life so that we might have our greatest needs met. What would happen if we follow in his ways? And I just want to end where we started. Are you willing to let Jesus redefine how you and I think of the word neighbor? Would you pray with me? What, what are some of the changes that you and I could start making now? Is it a heart change? I think that's probably where it starts for most of us, that kind of deep motivation For some of us, it's a schedule change. For some of us, it's a self-absorption change. We need to diminish that. You know, we think of with these religious leaders, how they could pass this by with all the knowledge of God they had. And yet I think how often do we get in here and we talk about things on Sunday and we get into our small groups and we talk about how amazing God is. And we literally walk out these doors or walk out the doors of our homes or apartments and we, and, and, and we see things all around us and we pretend like it doesn't exist. We have been neighbored in an amazing way by Jesus. And if we're going to orient our entire lives around him, then we must allow him to redefine this for us. Jesus, I thank you for what you have taught us this morning. I pray we wouldn't walk away from what seems really hard and challenging. I pray that we would lay down our excuses. I pray that we as a church would become a church who doesn't just love what you're doing in this community, but because of what you're doing in this community certainly will affect how we neighbor outside of these doors. Make us good neighbors, especially in light of how you have neighbored us. Jesus, in your name I pray. Amen. Let's stand and respond as the band leads us in a song, I think, that speaks to what we've been saying.